Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm the producer of the show, Andy. <laughs> and we are here with our friend Molly Crabapple, artist, activist, writer. She's many things to many people. Hello, Molly. Hey, Jamie. How you doing? Doing good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm a little tired, but uh, thank you for coming back on the show. It's always nice to see you. Oh, always, always. Hell yeah. So let's see. We, uh, we gave you a little shout out last week because you were among the people who got arrested at a protest at the Amazon store. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So what day was it? God, my senility is coming in. Uh, last Sunday, uh, about 44 people got arrested because we sat down at Amazon and we told them to stop providing tech to ICE. Now, what does that mean? It means that uh, Palantir, uh, which is the company that provides the infrastructure that lets ICE round up and detain immigrants, uses Amazon Web Services. And we don't think Amazon should do that. We think that it's wrong to provide uh, tech to fascists that lets them round up and detain people. Hot take. Yeah, I know, right? It's a shocking statement. Uh, the groups that organized it, it was a bunch of Jewish groups. It was a Jewish holiday uh, called Tishbav. I'm Jewish, though I'm an atheist. I didn't really know about this holiday, but it's a day of mourning. And oh, yeah. I don't know about any of the more obscure Jewish holidays. I'm the worst Jew. Yeah, yeah. I think both of us, bad Jews here. But but I think a number of the protesters are, are like us. But they had a really, really beautiful uh, ritual and people who knew how to sing beautiful Hebrew songs. I do not know how to sing. And then we sat down until the police took us out. Wow. Yeah. I saw some of those arrests on video and um, in pictures, and I noticed you were wearing your protest heels and looked very good <laughs> getting arrested. They were, they were comfy protest heels. I think I've permanently mutilated my own feet. So yes, I can march and hop barricades in heels. They are functional. Very impressive. And the only sort of notable thing about the arrest was that there were, you know, a lot of kind of older people with us, and they left us in these plastic cuffs for three hours. There was a lady next to me whose hands were turning red. She was in real pain, and the cop was just kind of, like, mocking her and trivializing it. Jesus Christ. And you know what? For a lot of these people, it might be their first tangle with the cops, right, if they're, like, middle-class white people. Absolutely. So, uh, this is most people's first arrest. And I think it was a really radicalizing experience for a lot of people. And I think that the people who did that, like these two really amazing teachers that I, I shared my cell with, are really tough and brave and cool for, for doing that for the first time and stretching what they thought they could do. So a lot of respect to them. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah I was going to ask you, like, who all were the people who showed up to this action? Like, well, it was the people who got arrested. It was a bunch of different types. Uh, there was my friends, uh, Eli Valley. Eli is a friend of the show, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sarah Leonard, who's a fucking amazing writer. But then it was other people, like there was rabbis. There was a city council member. Uh, there were just like a bunch of, I don't know, just like sort of normy, well-meaning kind of middle-aged people. And I, I think that there's a lot of power to people like that getting arrested because a lot of people who would utter, otherwise write off the protest or generalize about it or stereotype about it, when they see like a bunch of middle-aged school teachers getting arrested, they can't do that. Has there been any response from Amazon about this stuff? 
Amazon's had a ton of protests against their collaboration with Palantir. And their line has always just been, yeah, we collaborate with the government, so what? Uh, so they haven't, mm-hmm. they haven't given us any specific, that I know of, um, response to it. But the protest was all over the news, and I think it did up the awareness about what they were doing. They don't have 30 Twitter accounts to respond to the protest? Uh, th- those, that's not Amazon. Those are concerned members of the public who are just very invested in uh, ordering Prime and writing to me about how I'm a fool. I just imagine that from the back room, these like Scanner Darkly style automatons come out and just say, oh no, you have it all wrong about our relationship with Palantir. <laughs> Actually, and there's like a new one shows up to respond to every question. No, I wish. Every single time I have gotten on the bad end of Amazon on Twitter, their bots are always like, you dumb whore, I'm ordering lots of Prime despite you. <laughs> you oh think those God. are Amazon bots? I don't know who they are. I mean, they're bots. Who, who else? Like, Yeah, who else stands Amazon like that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, it, it would almost be sadder if those were just normal people who made new accounts out of you know their heart to defend Amazon. Oh, God. <laughs> you know... I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past some people to be big enough bootleggers to stand um, Amazon, honestly. <laughs> like if Elon, I mean, okay, Elon Musk's got fanboys, but at least he's got some pathos to him, you know? And an aesthetic. I mean, the only sort of even supervillain aesthetic thing that Jeff Bezos did was have that robot dog. Oh my God. Totally forgot about that. He really does look like a penis. Like, I wish there was something more, like, erudite or witty that I could say about him, but, like, all I can think of is penis whenever I see him. Like, when when someone was threatening to leak photos of his hog, remember that? Oh, God. His dick pics. And and you were like, that's just his whole body? Yeah. Like, it almost seems redundant. Like, I've already seen the big version of that. I don't even need to see the small version to know what it looks like. Maybe it has robot wings. You don't know. Oh, God. No, you're right. He's probably, like... Got, gotten some mods. He's, he's probably like some kind of like post-humanist future, future dick that is even more horrifying than you and I could imagine. Maybe his dick is actually tweeting, shut up, whore, I'm buying Prime. It's very possible. So uh, the Evict Ice campaign, what is it? What would you like to tell us about it? So the um, Evict Ice campaign is a campaign by Close the Camps NYC. And it is to raise awareness and evict ICE eventually from a secret office that it has in the Starrett Lehi building. Not a secret anymore. Yeah, not a secret anymore. And it's very ironic because it has this office that's supposed to be the office of community engagement, but no one knows about it in a building that's filled with all of these kind of like pro-LGBT community groups Mm. and also thinks. Panties and ah yes yeah the, uh, the problematic menstrual panties that I find very like they're a really good product but I just hate everything I've ever read about their creator so I would say they're a problematic fave of mine I could I could understand that I have many problematic faves not not thinks but other ones so the idea of this campaign is to tell the other tenants in the building that. ICE is like literally in their building, maybe spying on the immigrant on their immigrant employees or their immigrant customers, and to eventually, uh, you know, get it evicted from the building. Uh, the landlord, which is RXR Realty, is currently saying that they they cannot evict a tenant 
That's the first time in New York. Have you ever heard this? Yeah. I cannot evict a tenant My in hands New York. are tied. I am but a humble landlord. <laughs> landlords have no power in New York, especially not, you know, commercial landlords. Oh, Nothing. no. No, no. Uh, so that, that's, that's the campaign. Uh, they are having uh, their next open meeting on August 21st, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. at uh, the Church of the Village on 201 West 13th Street, if you would like to come to it. I am uh, I'm not, not involved in the planning of this campaign. It's just something I know about, and I think it's really important to not just go after ICE itself, but also uh, after all the corporations that are collaborating with it. Hell yeah. And uh, can you repeat that URL for people who want to get info on this event and others? I can. The URL is closethecampsnyc.com. Hell yeah. And I should also mention, if you're not in NYC, you can go to closethecamps.us to find out about activities in your area. There's a world outside of New York. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, 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 we're the worst. We're like that fucking New Yorker cover where it's like New York is here and then like everything else is a distant island. Exactly. But no, there's apparently there's a whole world out there and ICE is doing fucked up shit in other parts of the country as well. So uh, folks can get involved wherever they live. For instance, um, you may have seen online the video of some Jewish protesters in Rhode Island blockading a private ICE detention facility and then having one of the guards drive his truck into them. Yeah, I saw, I, I had that on the sheet. I was going to talk about that. Um, one of my DSA friends was actually there when it happened and said it was incredibly scary. Um, a few people were hospitalized, but I think mainly for the pepper spray. Um, and one thing that is creepy about it, I mean, one of many, obviously, right? Like they're trying to make laws as we speak to make it legal to run over protesters with your car, with your vehicle. And Heather Heyer was killed by a car just about two years ago. So I think this is a very clear line that we can draw um, from the criminalization of protests to the actual physical assaults and sometimes murders of protesters themselves no question i mean it's a common right-wing fantasy if you tweet about any sort of sit-down protest you will be deluged with people openly salivating at the idea of running you over with their suv it's not a comforting thought to have when you're doing these kinds of things um i will say that we got a lot of nice solidarity honks from uh cars and a lot of commercial vehicles trucks driving by when um on saturday we, we had the close the camps action where people blocked the west side highway um i talked a little about that last week but um one of the disturbing things about that video from rhode island was that the people driving into the crowd and the people who pepper sprayed the protesters it wasn't even the cops it was the guards from the ice facility like these people are totally off the reservation and I, I really I worry what's going to happen if their power continues to grow in an unchecked way. Yeah, I mean, these these people obviously feel no. No break on them whatsoever. And I think it's notable that the guard that drove his truck into these protesters had previous excessive force complaints against him uh, for probably beating up immigrants. And so what they're doing outside the detention center is nothing compared to what they're doing inside the detention center where there aren't cameras. And you can also draw a line from their treatment of immigrants and the marginalized to how they would ultimately like to treat the rest of us, right? 
Oh, no question. Because they're starting. I mean, it's like the old poem, you know, when they came for the immigrants, they didn't say anything because I wasn't an immigrant. Like, if you think that you could live a comfortable American middle class lifestyle and not have to worry, like these are only things that are happening to other people, people who aren't me, like you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And what's what's um, like when Trump, for instance, uh, demonizes Antifa, uh, whatever you think about Antifa, maybe you think Antifa looks silly or whatever. It's not just about Antifa. He's going to be drawing a straight line from Antifa to Democratic politicians. And your normie fave will also, um, you know, be tied to Antifa and you will also be put at risk. There is no sort of like safe, nice, middle class liberal position that you could have. We're all in this together. There's this uh, one one thing that this discussion kind of reminds me of is this trend amongst law enforcement um, of fetishizing the Punisher logo. Like uh, you see them on cars everywhere. Uh, and with like the Blue Lives Matter thing, you I kind of treat those like maybe a PBA card, like don't pull me over. But the Punisher thing is like fetishizing this anti-hero that like this vigilante anti-hero that goes and like kills like who the law is like powerless to stop. So for for cops to be fetishizing that is a very concerning precedence. Um, And it's basically the, you know, this weird merger of this like authoritarian law and order tendency with this desire for like pogroms and vigilante mass violence it's, uh, it's really scary, and uh, Antifa has become, like, the boogeyman for that. Like, it was Black Lives Matter, but Antifa's kind of, like, a better target because it's not so racialized. Yeah, exactly. They, c- they can pretend that it's not just them being racist. And the Punisher first started getting used in that way, not by cops, but by soldiers in Iraq. Mm. Oh, God. So it's also... That's so bad. Yeah, it's just a straight line from, like, the militarization of the police and police viewing themselves uh, not as, you know public servants in a community, but as some sort of occupying army that can do what they want. That is objectively terrifying. So uh, speaking of things that are terrifying or that's a terrible segue because these people turned out to not be so terrifying. They turned out to be a bunch of big old crybabies. They turned out to be a bunch of thirsty little flowers just begging to be watered with daddy's pee. And of course, I'm talking about the Proud Boys, or as I like to call them, the Proud Boys, <laughs> and their friends, Patriot Puer. Oh my Patriot. God. We're just a bunch of patriots having oh, a Puer. Oh my God, man. All these, these war correspondents that I know were posting this one photo of one of the Proud Boys wearing a plate vest with no shirt uh, and kind of, I don't know, given his like, special like miss mary mack hand sign and just mocking the hell out of it sounds about right yeah this like we're gonna play at being at the world's saddest and most virginal comics convention but with violence yep oh god so yes as everyone listening definitely knows by now there was a big fascist rally in portland this weekend um and it was kind of notable because leading up to it Everyone was afraid that there was going to be violence. Like there are scary fascists in the Pacific Northwest who have hurt people and killed people. And people were saying, like at least in the back channels that I was privy to, they were afraid that this was going to be really violent. There were some leaked texts basically showing that these people, that these right wingers were going there looking for violence, looking to beat up Antifa 
at the same time as maintaining some sort of plausible deniability with the police. This is supposed to be like this year's Charlottesville. Like, you know, hundreds of them flew in from around the country to make it something like that. Yeah. So it's totally reasonable to be worried about that kind of violence. Absolutely. And it turned out, though, like, and this, I think this shows one of the real benefits to anti-fascist work and exposing these people for who they are and what they're really about. Um, it, there got to be so much news beforehand that the cops, even though they are in many ways aligned with the fascists, they had to do something. They arrested one of the main organizers right in advance of the event. They took away their, some of their clubs and pepper spray, which, of course, they were carrying totally peacefully. Self-defense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when it came time to have the rally, it was just a few hundred losers. And then thousands of awesome anti-fascists creatively and militantly shutting them the hell down. Dead ass. And like, I don't know. We've seen we've seen some uh, naysayers on the right and even on the left saying that, um, you know, it's just a bunch of LARPing losers. If you give them any attention, it's a huge distraction. Um, why aren't you going to protest outside the CIA? Why aren't you going to the, <laughs> the power centers? Right. That's what Glenn Greenwald said. I mean, is Mr. Greenwald not aware of all of the anti-ice protests, including the one that just got the car, the truck driven into it? Also, like, as our Twitter account pointed out to him, uh, it wasn't Antifa that chose Portland for that rally. Yeah, it was people flying in from all over the country who, by the way, have been beating people up and assaulting people in Portland for quite some time and not just at the Patriot Prayers things. And yeah, that was that was a ridiculous, ridiculous uh, statement by him. I mean, it, like it, it just... Even even if you know maybe we share some of the same criticisms of Antifa, like it, it just makes sense that if a bunch of these assholes are in your town, you're going to want to do something about it, and that's why thousands of people turn out. And yeah, it would be amazing if thousands of people would turn out for you know every, like every weekend or like whenever Trump does one of these horrendous things. If there's always that kind of mobilization. Um, but the fact that people are showing up to repel this group, is just, it just makes sense. And it, of course it has to happen. And also, I mean, I have some friends that do anti-fascist work and those people are also protesting against militarism and also protesting at ICE facilities and also protesting at, you know, Amazon and Palantir. Yeah, I mean, Not I politically, think... just in like, in terms of, I don't know. I don't know what, why you would be that way, but... I think Sam said it best when he said that he's more libertarian than left. I that's think. not, but it's not civil liberties to like go into a town and like promise a rampage. You know, that's well, that not... too. No, fair enough. <laughs> I think he might take it a bit far in the things that he defines as civil liberties. I think that Glenn Greenwald does very good stuff on Brazil because that's the country that he actually lives in and that he's incredibly out of touch with stuff in America. And so probably just shouldn't comment it anymore because she hasn't lived there in a really long time. That is a very generous reading. It's also consistent just the way he's always yeah. been. So I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And I just think it sucks. He's a real mixed bag, that guy. So I think now it's time to move into the next portion of our episode and talk about a topic that I know is very near and dear to your heart, Molly. You were there before. 
writing about the uh, efforts to recover after Hurricane Maria. We had you on a while back to talk about mutual aid in Puerto Rico, and I thought that that was really great. And now you've gone again and written a new dispatch from Puerto Rico um, about the protests that are happening there and all of the wonderful self-activity of the working class. So a lot's happened in Puerto Rico since the last time we spoke. Um, Let's go through it. Man, well, as I'm sure everyone knows, uh, after Maria, both the federal but also the local government engaged in this orgy of incompetence, uh, corruption, and like really contempt for poor elderly, you know, people. There, people didn't get aid for a really long time. Aid that was sent uh, by the diaspora was hoarded in the convention center. The governor, Rosayo, his wife is a failed beauty queen. And she like immediately after the hurricane sort of slapped together a charity, got bajillions of dollars, and then only distributed the aid to districts that voted for her husband. Oy. Yeah, yeah, good stuff like that. So that's kind of one element of the backdrop to the protests. The other element of it is that in Puerto Rico, they had this woman who was the head of education named Julia Kelleher. She is a blondie Republican from Delaware who is friends of Betsy DeVos. Who, what the fuck? Yeah, I know. What the fuck? Who Rosario appointed, who was getting paid twice what Betsy DeVos got paid. And all she would do was close schools, which forces, you know, Puerto Rican families to leave because they don't have schools for their kid. And then when she was protested for this, claimed that people were reverse racist against her and oh cry God. and cry on video. Ugh. So Julia Kelleher had been you know, protested right and left because she's just a horrific human. And about a week before the protests really kicked off, she was arrested by the FBI for stealing millions of dollars. You don't say. Yeah, I know. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And I think it's really important when people act like Puerto Rico has this sort of endemic culture of corruption because, I don't know, they're like Caribbean or brown, to mention that one of the main villains in this is a blonde Republican from Delaware. So, you know, Julia Kelleher, remember the name. The third element of... um, the backdrop to these protests is that after the hurricane and after the, you know, 4,600 people plus died at all, and after all of the devastation, uh, it's a lot of psychological trauma. And this uh, led to a big uptick in domestic violence. And there was this amazing feminist group uh, called Colectiva Feminista en Construcción that wanted Rosario to declare a state of emergency about um, the murders of women that were happening And they camped out in front of his mansion. And what did he have his police do to women uh, protesting violence against women? He had his police beat them and pepper spray them, right? You know, he's a good guy. Yeah, that'll show them that there's violence against women. Yeah, yeah, it's all fine. It's all cool. So this is what is going on when 889 pages of chat logs that took place between uh, Rosario and what I can only describe as his metaphorical frat buddies, some of whom were in government, some of whom were not, were leaked uh, to the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these chats, if you had a list of every single thing you did not want to be caught saying with your frat bros, 
it starts off with just like hateful, misogynistic language and homophobic slurs. Then it goes uh, to confessions of buying tr- Twitter trolls to harass journalists, uh, just confessions of corruption, of cover-ups. Then it goes to your buddy talking about feeding the uh, dead of Maria to vultures while you all laugh about it. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. And, and talking about how beautiful it would be if Puerto Rico didn't have any Puerto Ricans in it. What? Yeah, it, it, go, it goes kind of on. It even includes him calling, like, making fun of his own supporters as fat idiots and using misogynist slurs against like members of his own party. Yeah, oh, geez. How much more evil can you get? Yeah, I know. If you had to think of what does it look like to be an utterly venal, soulless little rich boy who only got the governor job because your dad was the governor, it probably probably look like this, right? Uh, God, yeah. I mean, I haven't even looked at that many of them, but it sounds pretty bad. And then there's people who are like, oh, whomst among us has not used uh, (laughs) slurs against everybody in society. I'm like, actually, I haven't. I mean, if my chat's leaked, I'm sure I'd be embarrassed on multiple levels, but not. Not like that. I mean, nope. Yeah, no. And I just also want to say not to like make broad generation generalizations about societies, but I'm just going to make a broad, broad generalization about society here. One third of Puerto Rico participated in that in um, the biggest protest against Rosselló. It was a million people on an island of three million. That included a lot of people in his own party. It was not just something that was like lifelong opponents of Rosselló. And when you spoke to those people, they were like, "We have a sense of decency. That's not how you speak about people." I don't see like a broad-based, you know, one third of America protesting against Trump and demanding his resignation, including lots of Republicans, because of a sense of decency. Yeah, I was going to say, if only all those never-Trump Republicans would put their money where their mouths are, we might be getting somewhere. Yeah, no. No, in Puerto Rico, they were just like, you don't talk about people like that. What's interesting in your article, though, is not that this is just a movement that's emerged out of these shocking comments, but it's something that you say goes back to the 2010 student strike at the University of Puerto Rico and the formation of these neighborhood assembleas. Um And the way that you make it sound, it almost sounds like there's this kind of dual power structure emerging, which makes a lot of sense because the the kind of Trump administration policy towards Puerto Rico since the hurricane has basically just like let them die. It makes sense that people are just going to like try to take life into their own hands and fight against the state um, restructure in this like extreme austerity neoliberalism function. Uh, So so like where do you where do you see that heading and what was the role of the assemblyists and the in the Ricky Renuncia mov- movement and and the movement against the people coming after him. Against, against the movement against the bastards. Mm-hmm. The Assembleas were something that was really, really important in uh, the 2010 student strike, which was a 62-day strike against massive budget cuts at University of Puerto Rico, which is just like an astoundingly good university that every single rabble rouser on the island came out of and whose budget has always been under attack for pretty obvious reasons. And uh, the assembleas, I, I was at one of them in Caguas, and they're not like general assemblies that occupy Wall Street. I was going to ask. No, uh, I, no. I, if they were a successful force in this fight, I imagine that they were a little bit different. Yeah, uh, there, there's actually like a structure and rules and you all break into small groups and 
uh, think of sensible suggestions and then elect a representative to present that to the larger group in under two minutes and that present that representative can talk you tanky authoritarian you i am i'm so i'm so evil you know and i'm (laughs) and so these assembleas weren't used to organize the ricky renuncia movement instead they were something that people started turning to after ricky resigned and after they started saying like what comes next Because the problem uh, with Ricky resigning is it's not just about him. The entire Puerto Rican political elite is just completely rotten. Uh, A lot of that is because it's a colony and who chooses to run a colony, right? Uh, Generally, um, people who want to kind of steal from it. But also um, his party in particular is... um, it's just it's just horrific to give you an idea of sort of the vacuity at the top. The first person that he appointed to uh, to take over from him was a lobbyist for toxic coal ash dumps. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is the level we have here. And the woman who's currently the governor um, also had like corruption, criminal charges against her. So there. There was this desire by protesters, because the election isn't coming up till uh, 2020, to think, like, what do we do now? We can't just say, oh, we have another you know, corrupt lackey in charge. Let's just all go home, right? And the assembleas are about figuring out, like, what do you do next? Like, what does decolonization mean? What does that look like? What does it look like to have a functional political system that isn't just governed by a bunch of venal rich kids? I think that's a question that... Everybody all over the world should be asking themselves right now, but I'm especially happy that Puerto Ricans are asking it because they really have gotten the short end of the stick in so many ways. I mean, Puerto Rico is a colony and it's not just a colony. It's a colony that at this moment, America, I think, feels like it can't actually, you know, it's not going to make lots of money growing coffee in Puerto Rico or sugarcane like it used to or even even the pharmaceutical things are leaving so now America views Puerto Rico as something you can kind of like take to the pawn shop and just suck all the money out of it you can. And if that makes it completely unlivable for Puerto Ricans, well, too bad. And I think um, especially what you saw in these protests is that a lot of young people in Puerto Rico were looking at the future of their island and they were seeing a dystopia. They were seeing a place that had every single service cut off where the only role for them on that island was going to be to serve drinks for less than a minimum wage to some like fat pink man who barked at them in English. But what they're also seeing and what is different is that, you know, like in the fifties, young people like that would have left. They would have gone to New York, but now young people in Puerto Rico are looking at America and they're saying, what the hell? Is that somewhere I want to go? This, you know, orange racist in charge? No. And the young people that were leading this protest movement are people who like love their island. They love their home and they want to stay there and they want to fight for it. That's fucking great. Like, I, I think we've got a real critique of nationalism here at the Antifada. But when you see it in colonized people as a response to being colonized, it makes perfect sense. And it is actually a way, a mode of self-preservation. Exactly. I mean... I was hanging out with my friend Rosa Colon at this protest 
And we were kind of joking about how many flags there are there. Because I'm, I'm sure you've seen the photos of the protests. And, and it's like, can you put a flag on that flag? There are so many Puerto Rican flags. And we were joking about like why I felt different than if they were American or French or Spanish or literally any other flags. And what the conclusion we came to is that no one was ever massacred under a Puerto Rican flag. Fair enough. I mean, I learned about the culture clash between uh, Puerto Rico and Mexico when I was at a luchador match in Mexico City <laughs> and the uh, Boricua wrestlers came out and they're like the bad guys and they were the the Mexican crowd was booing them and they were throwing tortillas at all the Mexicans. And uh, I thought that was kind of funny. And my friend, uh, my friend Antonio turned to me and he was like, okay, this is what this is about. Uh, Puerto Ricans are prideful and Mexicans are humble. And like, that's why they jokingly don't get along. But like pride, pride is good. Pride is important when you're dealing with some fucked up colonial shit. Yeah. When you're dealing with people that literally always just tell you that you're stupid and lazy and infantile. I mean, when America invaded uh, Puerto Rico, one of their arguments for not giving Puerto Rico self-rule was that they had, quote, inferior Spanish blood. Oh, my God. That just goes back to the distinction between like the the criollos and the mestizos and i mean i i mainly know about mexican history so i'm sorry if i'm conflating this but like i imagine it's the same in every spanish colony right where you have the white upper class and yeah yeah it goes down from there but even to the americans even the right the white upper class was inferior because they were they were had inferior iberian blood oh like from an inferior part of spain because they weren't like Americans, because they weren't Anglo-Saxons. They did not have the vigorous, you know, whatever. This is like crazy 19th century race science. But that was what determined uh, how Puerto Rico was treated. Like fucking wackadoodle 19th century race science about like Alpine blood or, you know, Iberian blood or whatever. That is that's that was what was going on. Wasn't there a eugenics scandal where like one of the the chief medical officials from the United States was just like literally killing patients and writing about how they needed to get rid of all the Puerto Ricans. Did I, was it Albisu who wrote about that? I mean, they... I'm going to have to look that up. I think it yeah, was Puerto Rico. I feel Rico. like I heard about that. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I heard about that and I don't know the specifics. One thing I do know, though, is that they sterilized a lot of Puerto Rican women and they tested a lot of experimental birth control on them. Ah, oh, God. That's fucking horrible. I'm looking up this. This I feel like this person went on to have like a very illustrious career in the U.S. After, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. After Cornelius P. Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dark history of forced sterilization of Latina women. He plays a role in that. Yeah. So in uh, in November of 1931, uh, this letter leaked. He talked about just killing patients under his control. Um, so it's a very similar uh, situation to what's going on now is where the the people who are kind of like in control of the government of the colonial state are revealed to just have nothing but contempt for the people that they govern. Oh, yeah. This guy was the first director of the Sloan Kettering Institute Holy and fuck. the first director of the Combined Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And that's after he killed all his patients in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And I remember when, when Albizu Campos, who was the head of the Nationalist Party, I think when he wrote about this, people were like, oh, you're hysterical. You're delusional. That wouldn't happen. Oh, my God. So... I noticed that you take great care in your article, as well as in the drawings that go with the article, to describe all the different segments of Puerto Rican society. They were brought together by these protests. Um, how, 
how did that happen? Like we're we're always talking about that on the left here, right? Is it just that they they're being treated so terribly that everybody has no choice but to turn out? I mean, I think there, there's a few things. First of all, Puerto Rico is small. Puerto Rico is smaller than Queens. So huh. when people are like, why didn't this happen in America? I mean, there are very real material reasons. But the other thing is that um, Puerto Rico is a colony. And that kind of pushes people into the same boat. Even I, I stayed with my friend's mom, who is you know, a very sort of elegant upper middle class lady right after the hurricane. And even she in her elegant upper middle class neighborhood did not get power for a really long time because she's still just an upper middle class Puerto Rican, you know. Um, the protests also, they're, they're nationalist, right? And we're talking like nationalist in, in the decolonial sense, but that's like a shared aesthetic that and a shared you know, feeling that Puerto Ricans have that would be very kind of, I think, difficult, um, you know, to, to do outside of a, col- a colony. I also think that the protests are like really intergenerational. Like I would see like really badass old people at them and little kids and I would see whole families that went to them, you know. One one thing that kind of makes my heart beat a little faster was I was at this one protest um it was late and it was getting uh, kind of rough. Like the cops all had their gas masks on and stuff and uh, we're about to charge. And there's this one older gentleman in a motorized wheelchair that he had rigged up with a giant like flagpole in the back. And he was right at the front and he was screaming at the cops. And then he started driving his wheelchair back and forth in front of them like a fucking war chariot. Oh, my God. To like protect like these little students that were, you know, all protesting. That's so good. It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. Aww. I mean, yeah, it's every single type of person participated. There were so many scenes. There was, there is one scene that I saw where these dudes who, uh, you know, ride horses and they have like little clubs, you know, in the country. And these are like, they're not like, fa- it's not fancy to ride a horse there. It's just like your kind of country. That, that's why you do it. Oh, yeah. I got ratioed the other day, not to sidetrack this completely, but um, I assumed that buying too many horses was mainly an affliction of the upper classes Apparently not. Apparently there are uh, low-income people who also buy too many horses in America. Uh, The more you know. Anyway. So yeah, these are like just kind of like country dudes that have horses. And they organized their clubs and they rode all their horses together. It was like over 100, I think, into San Juan, down the highway for the protests. That's so cool. It looked like the cavalry. Like it made your heart swell. It was like looking at medieval knights, you know? I think that the protests, they just... I mean, everyone was so angry about Ricky. Everyone had suffered so much under Maria. So many people had lost friends and family members. And also, it's just like a kind of a more closely knit society in some ways. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. I think it's going to take a lot more immiseration for the average American to realize that they need to stand up. And even if they're not colonial subjects, they are still being dominated and oppressed 24-7 by this system. I mean, my friends Barrio didn't get, they didn't get power back for eight months. That's, that's a very real manifestation that I don't think that we've seen it. Well, we have seen it in some parts of the uh, continental U.S., right? We saw it in New Orleans. New Orleans. We saw it in the responses to disasters all over the place. But again, that mainly falls on the poor and the marginalized. It hasn't really penetrated to comfortable middle-class society in most places. 
So you write, uh, I really like this part because I feel like it's sort of a, a leading question, at least for me, like I know which I'd prefer, but you write, so what's going to happen next, right? We're all, because the fiscal control board is still in power. Exactly, because it's, it's imposed by Congress. The Puerto Ricans on the island can not vote to overthrow the fiscal control board because it is a colonial board that has been imposed upon them. Also, I just need to give like an I like a small example of one of like million terrible things the fiscal control board has done. And that is uh, recently they did this thing that's called Cofina, which means which is basically they pledged all of the income from uh, sales tax for the next 40 years to pay back vulture funds. Oh my god. So it's just like this complete mortgaging of the future and that's like one of a bajillion things that the fiscal control board has done. Also, the head of the fiscal control board gets paid $600,000 a year to do this uh, by Puerto Rican taxpayers. Of course. Of course yeah. they do. So it's just this uh, externally imposed, uh, Obama-imposed uh, instrument of wealth extraction. Also, um, the other uh, dude who's uh, big in the fiscal control board is this dude named Jose Carrion III, who's from a rich banking family and is on the board of Latinos for Trump. Of course. Of course, right. So this Por is... Supuesto. So this is like the nest of like lackey vipers that you got. And it's not something the Puerto Ricans can, um, on the island, can overthrow themselves. And so you want to read my, uh, my quote? Yeah, yeah. So in like, what, what are we going to do? How do we get rid of this? Um, it's not going to be easy. So you write by way of answering this question. Um, First, the 5 million strong Puerto Rican diaspora now living in the U.S. could make Puerto Rico a political issue, advocating for their families on the island who, as colonial subjects, are not allowed to vote in federal elections. Second, Puerto Ricans can make the island ungovernable. And I know which of those two things I find more effective as a route to change, but where do you come down on this? Uh, both. Porque no los dos. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, the thing is that during the protests, you saw the most sort of vapid instrument, most sort of vapid instrumentalization of Puerto Ricans bravery by um, political figures that had really voted to fuck them over. Uh, to give you my favorite example, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who I very much dislike for a number of reasons, went down to Puerto Careful. Rico you're going to have a lot of reply guys in your mentions. <laughs> oh, my God. I had so many reply guys for saying this. So she goes down to Puerto Rico and is like taking, you know, selfie video during the protests being like, everyone come down here to, you know, support the Puerto Rico. No, not support. To support our fellow Americans at this protest. And yet Tulsi Gabbard voted to create the fiscal control board. Oh, my God. Yeah. I Sorry, have Tulsi stands. We yeah. got to thank our friend, uh, I think it was Virgil, who confirmed <laughs> that she is not an anti-imperialist. <laughs> Good. He nice. asked her directly in Iowa. All right. In your, you, you dumb, dumb leftists do not have a leg to stand on. I'm sorry. She sucks. She voted for the fiscal control board, then went down to Puerto Rico, called them her fellow Americans, took video of them singing a La Borinquena, which is like the revolutionary nationalist anthem, which talks about winning freedom with a machete. Um, didn't know what it was, said it was cool that the fellow Americans were singing and uh, voted for the fiscal control board. So that's Tulsi. And that to me is an example of the sort of vapid appropriation of uh, the protests on the island. 
And I do think that there is a lot of work that can be done with taking people that had voted for Promesa and putting huge, huge amounts of pressure on them so that uh, they vote to dissolve it. I also want to say, uh, if I'm going to be advocating for politicians, Bernie Sanders voted against Promesa and he said it was colonial. Hell yeah. He did. And That's our man. Bernie voted against it and Elizabeth Warren voted against it. Tulsi voted for it. Just saying. Well, good for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, we have critical support for them, but and, and not everything that they do is perfect. But Bernie has been on the right side of so many issues throughout history. And I could say history because he's like a billion years old. <laughs> exactly. And like he voted against this thing at a time when it wasn't getting very much attention. Absolutely not. And he not just voted against it, but he said why he voted against it in the way that Puerto Ricans would have liked him to. Good job, Grandpa. Good job, Zadie. You can you could stay on our island for now. <laughs> so I want to give a shout out to the first wave of protests being sparked by a feminist collective with their protest of domestic violence. Um, it really seems like that links back into a lot of what we talked about in our feminism for the 99% episode, which is that um, it's often what, you know, what some class reductionists might consider identitarian interests. It's often a gender demand or a racial demand that ends up sparking a larger kind of class-wide activity. And it seems like this is a really good example of that. The first um, of this sort of series of protests that led to Rosayo eventually running like a scared little boy out of office was called by this amazing feminist group called uh, Colectiva Feminista en Construcción. Feminist, uh, anti-racist, and like badass uh, collective of women. They did a lot of mutual aid after Maria. Oh, look, Teen Vogue has an article on them. Of course. Of Shout course they to do. Teen Vogue. Hells Yeah. And um, they were out there protesting, and I have seen their people at every single protest um, that I've gone to, and they're also, right now, one of their members is raising funds in New York. And I think that if you went to the protests, what you would notice is that the people on the front lines, the people confronting the cops, there were a lot of women. There were so many women. I especially really, really young women, like students at University of Puerto Rico. It's like on one side, you have this piggy frat boy who's referring to women as whores and mocking them and diminishing them. And the other side, you have 18-year-old girls who have ridden whore but not corrupt over their arms and are wearing gas masks and are holding cops back. Oh, that's so badass. It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. Protests were also super queer. You saw like drag queens. Um, you saw like ballroom and voguing. Used. Oh my God. It was I so love good. it. So good. And yeah, on one side, rich boy patriarchy. And on the other side, you know, sheer beautiful feminist queer rebellion. By the way, do you know anything about the glitter protests in Mexico City? I, I don't. I'm not familiar. So this is just from this week. Uh, there was a two scandals of uh, teen girls being raped by police officers in Mexico City. And there was this protest of hundreds of, of mostly women at the prosecutor's office that kind of like smashed it up. And there's been subsequent mini riots of, of mostly women. And they're called the glitter protests because they're throwing glitter and glue on politicians and police officers. Amazing. Yeah. So I don't know, kind of a similar 
you know, feminist inspired unrest in both countries. And I don't think that anyone could have seen that video of, do we all know the video of Ricky Martin during the general strike on top of the truck waving the giant Puerto Rican rainbow flag? Uh, you know what? Maybe we should watch that again. I think we need to watch that again. I think it's it's heart stirring. Yeah, he, didn't he? He only came out as gay like a few years ago, right? He did. His husband is a Syrian Kurdish guy, by the way. Oh, wow. Ricky Martin is woke. Ricky Martin marches with pride flag against embattled Puerto Rican. Comrade Ricky, look at him. That should be a revolutionary painting. Right? It is. It basically is already. Holy shit. Oh, he's so handsome. He's beautiful, and he's leading a general strike with a queer Puerto Rican flag. It's so good. It's so good, and it really goes against this kind of... Again, I don't even want to give these people that much space in this show because they really are not a big part of the left. But the people who think that stuff like feminism and LGBT issues should be like kind of a, a side thing, a side project to the main project of class war or whatever because you know the average working class people is like weirded out by queers or whatever like that just does not hold true in any real world scenario that i've seen can you imagine wanting to be the less educated camille paglia because that's what those people want to do oh man some of the first you know unionizations and some of the first like strikes were Female factory workers protesting creepy-ass foremen that grab their asses. We can fight back. But wait, thats I thought that was neoliberal if you don't want a man to grab your ass at work. I mean, from each according to his ability to each according to his ass-grabbing needs, I guess? What the hell? I mean, I think the problem is that socialism has to be weird. It also has to be normy. It has to be fucking everything because it's supposed to be for everyone. It's it's not supposed to be something where there's a specific dress code and you all have to have a neck beard and flannel or where you all have to, you know, be, be anything else. If, if socialism is not supposed to be like a music scene. And I think that the problem is that these people who espouse that, who usually are not working class themselves and mostly know about the working class from... Um, they have the sort of caricatured idea of what it is, and they want to police other people so their weird caricature of the working class doesn't get, like, freaked out. I mean, I totally agree with you, obviously. I think the weird caricature of the working class is often secretly just them. <laughs> it's just you. You're a ventriloquist. But I feel like we end up talking about this every time, and I almost feel bad for uh, giving it so much space in my brain and on my show, but I also think that we are involved in some really important fights on the left right now. And um, maybe it's fine to keep making this point in different ways when we see examples of it, like the amazing Ricky Martin photo that you just showed me. And the thing about Ricky Martin is Ricky Martin is two things that those people would not like. One, he's like fabulous queer man, but also Ricky Martin is an extremely popular pop musician that like girls think are sexy and they also don't like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about normie or yeah. no, like pop, pop music is I mean, it's pop. It's enormously popular. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the essence of it. And so he would also, in addition to their stupid idea that he would, I don't know, weird people out because he's a gorgeous gay man. There's also the idea that he's fundamentally trivial and useless to any sort of struggle because he makes like awesome pop that you dance to. Yeah, I mean, the people who like that music are usually... Uh, chicks right yeah. and they're, they're like and they're not like chicks who work in factories they're like teenage girls who like to go to the mall or whatever and you know maybe not as useful to the class struggle 
as like a white guy in a hard hat or a strapping a strapping man. But I think in general, we just support any group of people struggling against their bosses and against the power structure. Uh, like we support the these miners in in Kentucky, in West Virginia, in Harlan County. You know, f- like blockading the tracks and trying to get their back pay. Exactly. It's not, we, it's not like we support them more than anyone else or less than anyone else. Like we we just believe in class self-activity and some some of the class is queer and some of the class are people of color and some of the class is white. So it's just the, like it's not like we shouldn't talk about the more marginal elements. It's ridiculous. Exactly. It's about everyone fighting for liberation as opposed to confining it to some like weird little demographic that you could imagine hanging out at your Leninist reading circle. Dead ass I mean, this is just uh, people need to in a way like they they need to, to, to fight where they stand and it, it just makes like like for me uh working in, in restaurants for so long a lot of people that i worked with were not politicized but they were people of color and they were queers or gender non-conforming and you know it's so like i don't see that stuff as subcultural because that's just the people that i work with and obviously i live in brooklyn but i don't think it's like you know so anomalous no, yeah. I don't think so either. So, okay, I wanted to ask you one more thing about Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe more than one more thing. Um, and you talk about the sort of political breakdowns between oh, between um, people who want Puerto Rican statehood versus total independence from the U.S. versus remaining a commonwealth, which is what it is now. Um could you can you break down that uh, that fight a little bit and maybe tell us where you come down on it? So I don't usually say where I come down on it because I, I don't live in Puerto Rico. And I think that this is a fight for Puerto Ricans who live in Puerto Rico. And it's not something for a bunch of other people who don't necessarily have to deal with the consequences of whatever choice there is to um, impose on it. Puerto Rican people need to be listened to. And this is theirs. Uh, in terms of the divisions... There are two main political parties in Puerto Rico. Uh, there's what's called the Populares, who um, want uh, some form of the Commonwealth. And then um, there's the Penepes, which are, um, that's Rosselló's party, and they want statehood. And what's a little bit weird about Puerto Rican politics is that the party divisions are just about status. So you can have like a pro-gay marriage, like marijuana legalization guy in the statehood party, along with a hardcore Christian fundamentalist homophobe. Um, And this is something that's really like limiting and distorting to Puerto Rican politics. Uh, There's also a Puerto Rican independence party, um, which is kind of the heir to the viciously and violently suppressed Puerto Rican nationalist party. And there's like a few other, a few other sort of small things. But, the most important thing about this fight, where everything politically is done according to status, is that Puerto Rico cannot determine its own status. It can have all the referendums it wants. They don't mean anything. Puerto Rico is what's called a territorial possession of the United States. It is the property of the U.S. Uh, they could sell it if they wanted to. They could trade it for Greenland. Mm-hmm. And Puerto Ricans cannot decide their fate. Only Congress can decide their fate. In terms of what I think should happen, I mean, even a referendum, and there, there was a referendum that was like boycotted by everyone, even that, you know, can't fix things. I think that, I, I'm like, 
See, I feel like I shouldn't talk about this. Like my, I should get my father on because my father is actually like an expert in, you know, this in this sort of law and like did his life's work on. And I feel like I'm we kind of call flattering. Him up and call it Mr. Crabapple. <laughs> <laughs> you could talk up Mr. You could call up uh, Dr. Caban and he, he'll, he'll talk your ear off. He'd be good to have on this show. He's 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 awesome. And he's a Marxist. Cool. Mm. But I think that while the uh, protests completely shunned all of the traditional parties, that the question of colonialism underlay everything and that everyone knows that this current status now, which is um, just the status of sucking Puerto Rico dry and not helping it when it's being wrecked by a hurricane. I think everyone knows that status is completely untenable. And at the protests, you saw so much open disgust with uh, this bipartisan situation where everything is in the political life is dominated by two parties who swap between each other each year, build up their patronage networks, indulge in like blatant cronyism and argue over something that they ultimately have no control over. Um, so the, like, uh, I noticed that when the, the protests were kicking off, there was one slogan that was taken from Argentina of que se vayan todos, which means they all have to go basically break this cycle of going from one party to the other um, and in Argentina, that led to like 10 presidents like resigning one after another. Uh, basically, the the economic crisis there was so out of control that the, the country was just ungovernable, ungovernable for a period of time until there was this period of like more or less left populist restructuring. Um, and we sort of see that coming back as Argentina slips deeper and deeper into crisis. Uh, but still, this kind of like the that that watchword of they all have to go that like anti-state or anti um anti-representative sentiment uh still exists but it's it's kind of marginal um so i guess like the next steps for puerto rico how do you see the state kind of reconstituting its power gaining legitimacy again and do you think this this movement can kind of continue to fight back the anti representative sentiment is Omnipresent. Uh, one of the most common slogans that you hear is uh, clean the house. And people have a million signs with various witty puns on that. Because the truth is that the political class is really, 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 really corrupt at its higher end and, and on both sides. However, and this is, you know, my, my own personal opinion, I think that as long as you do have a representative democracy, that if you if the sentiment of your street movement is like clean the house and you don't offer any alternatives, you don't offer any candidates, that what's actually going to happen is that the same old bastards are going to keep being in power. Um, there are some attempts to um, create, um, you know, and sort of raise up uh, new candidates who can run that are outside of this biparty system. There's uh, one uh, movement that's called uh, the Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana. Uh, which started in March and has a lot of like socialists on it, like real amazing radical lawyer I know, uh, Mariana Nogales is on it. Um, Rafael Bernabe, who's a socialist professor, is um, you know a member of it. But its most prominent member is a member of the House of Representatives that came out of the Puerto Rican uh, student movement of 2010, whose name is Manuel Natal. Uh, Manuel Natal is a very impressive person, uh, very, very smart, but he's one year too young to run for governor. Mm. And 
their other most prominent uh, member is a woman named uh, Alexandra Lugaro. Uh, Lugaro is a businesswoman. And she ran last time against Ricky for governor. She was the first uh, independent candidate for governor in the island's history. And she got 11% of the vote. And she ran on like a, an anti-corruption kind of independentista um, very like feminist, uh, also said that she was an atheist, which caused a scandal type platform. And I wonder if they'll put her forward as a candidate again. Uh, she does not have, um, I think, the political background or, um, you know, political gravitas of, you know, someone uh, like Natal, but she did get, um, she got 11% of the vote, which was absolutely unprecedented and, I mean, shocking to people. That is impressive. I mean, we talk a lot about on this on this show about what happens when these kinds of grassroots uprisings get channeled back into electoral politics. And even if you have a very populist left populist government uh, coming in, they often become the administrators of austerity, like we saw with Syriza in Greece. We did our Greece episode with Pavlos Rufos. Um, at the same time, like I totally understand why people would want to go that way because the alternative is a fucking global socialist revolution, right? Or like a socialist revolution in one country, which is a lot harder, a lot more violent and I don't think that we have the forces assembled yet to successfully carry that out. No, we would be massacred. I mean, I, I always tell people who fetishize armed revolution that you look at Syria, which was a country where most Syrian men had two years mandatory military service. They know how to use guns, unlike American you know, men. And it's also a country where the uh, central government was infinitely less armed than in America, right? And the popular revolution in Syria was crushed because they don't have an air force. So I don't know why anyone would possibly think that you could have a armed revolution in the United States that didn't do anything except just end in everyone dying. Well, certainly not at this moment in time. I think, uh, I mean, people's concept of revolution, I think it, var it varies. It varies in quality, but we do talk a lot about revolution on this show, and maybe that's a good thing to end on because the idea, the idea that we could take up arms and overthrow the U.S. government is obviously ridiculous. Well, you know, uh, I was reading up a little bit on, on Marx's evolving um, opinions about revolution, and I noticed he said something in, like, 1850 that's very similar to what you just expressed. Uh, he said, like... Well, you know, the French Revolution succeeded because the gendarmes didn't have cannons back then. So now if we try to if we try to do what the French revolutionaries did, we would just be like, I guess they did have cannons. But he's like, you know, the artillery is like developed enough that a revolution can just be crushed. Starting to say that, like, the best tools we have as socialists is like suffrage and uh, like a political program and representation and moving into democracy. But he still understood that at a certain point, like the final revolution is going to be, you know, resolving these class contradictions in a in a more or less violent way. Um, but it's just interesting that like the, the 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 idea of the state being like so vicious and so well armed right now 
has made it so people don't even want to talk or think about revolution. And it makes sense because it's like what happened in Syria is horrifying. Like that started out as just as like just a kind of like Occupy style, like this shit's fucked up and needs to change. And it it ended in like millions of people being displaced and dead. So it's it's you know, it really like kind of raises the stakes there was like a reality check in a, a very real way yeah it's fucking terrifying i mean i don't want to die if i can avoid it um uh, certainly not if i don't think that there's a good chance that my side is gonna win which at the moment there isn't but you know we always have to be looking to the future um I- i'm always trying to expand people's idea of revolution beyond you know the traditional fighting in the streets, whether it's um, some like sneaky uh, hacker and saboteur tactics like we talked about with Spencer Rapone, the army resistor, the commie cadet who believes that the U.S. military can be defeated, not in a pitched battle, but via sabotage, high tech hacking, supply lines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, a lot of the work of revolution is also the work of collective care. Like the Socialist Rifle Association, um, it's called the Socialist Rifle Association, but guns are only a small part of what they do. They're about community defense, which often involves just making sure that people have food to eat. Um, They've been doing a lot of disaster relief. And I see in the future, I mean, people disagree about this, but I think it's at least possible that the state will break down on its own if we come to a point of crisis or maybe not maybe they'll institute martial law but we've already we've already seen them retreat from areas that have been uh hurt, hit by disasters and ones that are deemed non-profitable i mean i think you're you're quite right that the state will retreat from areas that it can't make money off of yeah and when that happens like i want the left to be ready which is why which is why I have sort of like a nuanced and ambivalent position on guns, right? Because on the one hand, I don't like living in a country that's awash in guns. I don't like hearing about kids getting shot at school. I don't like getting death threats myself from people who might have guns, which is a thing that happens to pretty much every woman who has opinions in public, especially leftist opinions. Um, And most of the people killed by gun violence are Poor people and people of color. So the left really should not, uh, shouldn't, it, it shouldn't dodge this question. We should care about this question. At the same time, there are parts of the country that are already awash in guns and gun culture, and that's not going to go away. Um, the right is very heavily armed. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Like, w- if and when we come to a point where the state has broken down or where the state has retreated from different places, whether it's because they're just totally used up they can't extract any more resources they can't extract any more profit from there whatever whatever like i want someone to be defending those communities from the white power militias that are definitely going to be out in full force so like it it sounds crazy to catastrophize in this way when that seems like i mean given what we're talking about um these kind of questions aren't really theoretical because molly last time you're on the show you were talking about these mutual aid networks and uh projects that you saw in the aftermath of the hurricane i I don't know when you're on maybe six months ago maybe a year ago like has though how have those projects progressed or sustained since we were last there they've moved away from uh, the model of just like feeding people you know the sort of 
how do you, how do you call it? Like the you know first reaction to disaster, like keep people alive, feed them, give them water. Um, they've moved away from that uh, to being much more something. Um, that's about like community organization uh, that can be about like legally helping people, uh, you know, stay in their homes, uh, get reimbursement. Uh, that could be about occupying schools um, that were being shut down. Um, they've moved to a much more political way while like some of them are still like going really strong and flourishing, uh, especially like in Gaguas. But I think that the skills and the idea of community organization was something absolutely instrumental in how these protests evolved. I, I think I see a straight line from the mutual aid centers to the Ricky Renuncia protests. Yeah, that's important. When you say they took a step back, does that step back look like, uh, you know, eventually the state coming in and bringing in some aid or? Uh... Nah. A lot of these places where they had these kitchens, there was no food. I mean, like, just food didn't get to the supermarkets. There was no fresh food. You just, like, couldn't eat. And that sort of crisis, you know, it's been two years. It's, you know, not not the same as it was. So basically things stabilized in a way. Yeah. But... And then people left, too. So many people Mm, left. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think 10% of the population of Puerto Rico, maybe, like, 8% left after the hurricane. But I, I guess uh, kind of where we're going with this is like, do you do you see in that model something that could viably um, stabilize things in a different sort of where, you know, like there won't be that kind of return of stability and governance? I think I think it could. I think especially uh, things that are a bit better resourced. Uh, there's a place called uh, Casa Pueblo that Naomi Klein wrote a lot about. That was like the one place in the community that had power after the hurricane because they had solar beforehand. And they have remained like a super active hub. And the government has even, I think they like detained the head of Casa Pueblo, you know, uh, because it's kind of threatening. Also, there's a lot of um, agricultural projects in Puerto Rico now that are done with like a really strong view to uh, food sovereignty and um, that are really, really, really powerful and that are fucking crucial. Because one of the ironies after um, the hurricane was that Puerto Rico is so fertile. You can grow anything there. But um, the U.S. imposed this like sort of monoculture on it and then just like stopped even growing those crops. And now Puerto Rico imports most of its food, right? And if you want to decolonize, you have to have food. You can't just, you know, like be in a situation where if you don't import shit, you starve to death. And so um, that sort of agricultural stuff is super, super crucial. Um, and you even see it like so many of my radical friends who live in San Juan have like vegetable gardens in just just to grow their own food. It's like some, something that's very much part of life. I do think that they can be sustainable. They just need to have the resources to support them. You can't run these projects on the idea that um, you just have people endlessly working for free um, without like kind of getting you know getting anything to support themselves like forever that's just that's just not going to work it has to be they they can't they can't exist on their own i guess is what i mean it needs to be like a whole society that um that reinforces them i don't think that things can just run on people's like will and heroism forever even though like people are like are fucking amazing and really really heroic um and I think one of the things that's been making a lot of those projects more sustainable is that a lot of Puerto Ricans in places like New York are uh, fundraising for them. Yeah. Hell yeah. So um, what can our listeners do if they want to show support and material solidarity for the people who are doing this kind of work? 
Uh, the first thing, obvious, uh, donate, uh, Colectiva Feminista and Construcción. Uh, Taller Salud is a really cool place. They're like a a, a women's health clinic in um, Luisa, which is a overwhelmingly black uh, city in Puerto Rico, uh, quite, quite poor, and Taller Salud is radical and awesome. Um, they can uh, donate uh, to the Centro de Apoyo Mutuo in Caguas. Um, and I'll make, I'll make a list of stuff like this. But then there's another thing, and this is something I think is really important. So I've been talking about how Puerto Ricans on the island cannot overthrow La Junta because it's imposed by Congress. People on the mainland can hurt La Junta, and this should not just be the job of Puerto Ricans. I think that groups like Democratic Socialists of America should be aggressively organizing so that any time these members of this fiscal control board are showing up in public, they're met with protesters. I think that um, they should be um, putting pressure on um, flippable, um, you know, political, uh, like flippable congressmen to get them to um, come out strongly and militantly against PROMESA and against the fiscal control board. And I think it is ridiculous that this incredibly clear, just like black and white example of disaster capitalism, colonialism, uh, like the racist effects of climate change, everything is right here. And the responsibility for for overthrowing it is just on the Puerto Rican community. I think it needs to be on um, on everyone in America. And I think that anyone who seriously considers themselves um, an anti-capitalist needs to be organizing against La Junta. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a very good place to end it. We're going to put some donation links uh, in the episode description so you all can donate to help folks doing this crucial work in Puerto Rico. Thank you so much for coming back, Molly. It's always a pleasure. Oh, man, thank you so much for having me. Is there anything else that you would like to plug before we go? Are you going to play that El Residente Bad Bunny song I told you about? I think we are. Hells yeah. Llegó la hora de un combo de miles en motora patrullando las 24 horas boricua de cora con el puño arriba a la conquista no nos va a meter las cabras un pendejo de marista según este compadre mi maíz junto con todas las mujeres son igual de putas que su madre tú no eres hijo del cañaveral escoria tú eres hijo del cabrón más corrupto de la historia disculpen mis expresiones pero al igual que Ricky estoy liberando las tensiones le doy fuego a la fortaleza como se supone y al otro día voy a la iglesia para que me perdonen mejor no quieras probar de que estamos hechos aquí en el monte heredamos el mismo pecho tus disculpas se ahogan con el agua de la lluvia en las casas que todavía no tienen techo tú no heredaste pecho tú heredaste un patrimonio y a ti por la noche te persiguen los demonios la familia que mataste destruiste un matrimonio esto va por Lilian y su hijo Juan Antonio esto va para que despierte esto va por las 4.645 muertes la hipocresía del país en general, tirar piedra en Venezuela está bien, pero en Puerto Rico está mal, esto va para los artistas internacionales y las banderitas de Puerto Rico en las redes sociales ninguno de nosotros, los supuestos bandoleros, está acusado de fraude, robo lavado de dinero, con todo lo que han robado estos politiqueros pintamos las paredes del Caribe entero, y aunque esto no le caiga bien a la gente, para decírtelo en un chat, para eso lo digo de frente se tiran a los caseríos, a los puntos de droga, le rompen las casas y 
por ellos nadie aboga Nosotros hacemos lo mismo sin delicadeza Estos criminales le hacemos una redada en fortaleza Si el pueblo entero quiere que te vayas cara dura Y tú te quedas entonces estamos en dictadura Solo te apoya tu esposa, la exmodelo La que piensa que 100 años de soledad la escribió Coelho Y así son los pocos que te siguen brutos Pero tranqui, afilar navajas, toma un minuto Somos el rugido de la bandera de Puerto Rico Con todos sus tejidos exigiendo tu renuncia para que nadie salga herido, todo el mundo unido, no importa el color de tu partido. Esto salió temprano para que te lo desayunes. La furia es el único partido que nos une. Vamos cortante como los cuchillos, sacando chispas hasta llegar al filo. Hay que arrancar la maleza del plantío para que ninguno se aproveche de lo mío. El pueblo no aguanta más injusticia. Se cansó de tu mentir y de que manipulen las noticias. Ey, ey, todos los combos, los caseríos. Somos nuestra milicia. Ya no nos coges de pendejo. Eres un corrupto que de corrupto coges consejo. Arranca para el carajo y vete lejos. Y denle la bienvenida a la generación de yo no me dejo. Y quizás tú en tu grupo, como yo en el mío. Pero yo no tengo fondo público escondido. De la muerte de los puertorriqueños, yo no me río, PR está Cabronao, Ricky está jodido. Y te enterarán todos los continentes que Ricardo Rosselló es un incompetente, homofóbico, embustero, delincuente. A ti nadie te quiere, ni tu propia gente. Vamos a prender en fuego a tu gabinete. Los títeres guardan las cortes y saquen los machetes. La cuna de la cría con el boricua nadie se mete. Todas las paredes dicen Ricky vete. Ey. Y no es vandalismo, vandalismo. Es que nos tiremos nosotros mismos por defender a los que nos llevaron al abismo vandalismo es que siempre voten por lo mismo y se roben todos los chavos de educación mientras cierran escuela y los niños no tienen salón Ey, es hora de sacar la rata que se vaya Ricky, que se vaya el otro que se vaya Tata y no se trata de hablar malo en las conversaciones malo hablo yo en mi casa y en todas mis canciones, se trata de que le han mentido el pueblo con cojones de que escondiste la muerte con ti los vagones y te burlaste de nosotros con otros cabrones, existe que el país entero sin cojones, manipulación, corrupción, conspiraciones, Ricky renuncia y a tu mente te perdone, yo no, yo no. Vamos cortante como los cuchillos, sacando chispas hasta llegar al filo, hay que de lo mío vamos cortante como los cuchillos sacando chispas hasta llegar al filo hay que arrancar 